while the title is self-made, I think she would certainly acknowledge that it was the assistance and mentorship of other women when she was really struggling who had helped lift her up. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Talking right before I started recording, and I was telling you how much I loved self-made. Uh, and obviously, you actually wrote the book about Madam C.J. Walker's entrepreneurial journey to becoming the first uh, woman American uh, millionaire. And I think it's it's such a it's such an amazing story from 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 many many angles. And I just want to know from from you from your standpoint, being her great uh, great granddaughter. Uh, what was it like just to be even kind of attached to this whole story emotionally and, and upfront and, and not like us as, as spectators? Yeah, I, well, I really began to find out about Madame Walker long, even before I learned how to read my grandmother's dresser drawer, which hadn't been disturbed since she had died in 1945. In 1955, when I was three, I would visit with my mother at her, where her father lived in that apartment. And I began to discover things that had belonged to Madame Walker and Alelia Walker, these mother of pearl opera glasses that had been Madame Walker's, the little miniature mummy charms that Alelia Walker had brought back from a trip to Egypt in 1922, when she mm. also had visited the empress, she had met the empress of Ethiopia in Addis Ababa and traveled to London and Paris and Rome. So I was learning about them even before I knew who they were. And then the silverware that we used every day had CJW, Madame, Madame Walker's monogram and the baby grand piano on which I learned to read music had belonged to Alelia Walker. So you can tell I had a, you know, a privileged background, not a, you know, not, we weren't super, super wealthy by any means, but you know, we certainly were very comfortable. And my mother was vice president of the Madam CJ Walker Manufacturing Company. So I would mm. go with my mother to her office. So I knew that there was this connection to these legendary women, but my mother was really wise about not making it a big deal. So I began to, I was able to discover it on my own terms without feeling any pressure about it, which is, you know, I'm, for which I'm very grateful. In, in what point in the story, like if you if you were to take the series as an example, and I know we were saying that, you know, parts of, of Hollywood, you know, gets chimed in there, but just from a neutral lens, what part in that story resonates the most with you? Yeah, Octavia Spencer was great. Yeah. Um, she yeah. really, for me, embodied Madam Walker's courage and tenacity and showed the arc of developing a business, which, of course, has lots of ups and downs. And the struggle that goes on, the sacrifices that one has to make, but also the triumphs when you are able to empower other people. And she was able to create, help other women create economic independence for themselves and their families and to buy homes and educate their children and then to create some generational wealth. So those pieces of the story shine through. I think what you don't get is her philanthropy and her political activism that she realized that her community had created her wealth. And so she felt a real obligation to give back to the community. And also that the women, when she was, a, when Sarah Breedlove was a poor washerwoman making a dollar 50 cents a day, the women of her church, St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church in St. Louis had seen a spark in her and had reached out to her. So 
While the title is self-made, I think she would certainly acknowledge that it was the assistance and mentorship of other women when she was really struggling who had helped lift her up. Right, right. And, and it's funny that, you know, I, I think you see parts of, of when, when, you know, when she's starting to put this hair grower together, that she's also trying to personify what other women could look like. Because at the time, you know, the, the beautification of women was this kind of white uh, woman personage, right? And, and from, from a different vantage point, it was very difficult to resonate with that. So there was kind of like this early marketing finesse about it that, that was so strong. She was really, she was a genius at marketing. The fact that she put her own image on her product, you know, and as we know, in communities of color around the world, there is shade given to people when they're darker skinned, that that is a way to keep people in their place, to put them down, to say that they don't deserve privilege. And she knew that even though the character, the Addie Monroe character is really exaggerated and the competition really wasn't about skin color, but she certainly felt that as a black woman in, um, you know, as a first generation out of slavery, what skin color meant and what European standards of beauty, the impact that that had on how women felt about themselves. But by putting her own image on the product, she was really kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying, there is beauty in who I am and there's beauty in who you are. Yeah, yeah. And, and there were points too, where, which I loved, where like she really stood for herself or stood up for herself in, in two very pinnacle moments. One was with, uh, you know, at one point early in the story, I ho- and I hope this is not a spoiler alert for anyone listening, you probably should pause this, watch it and then come back because <laughs> I don't want to get any negative comments. <laughs> but there was at one point where, you know, she, she tries to join uh, another woman. I, again, I'm not going to give too much, but tries to, right. to join another woman who's already doing this and says, listen, like I can really sell this to, to a different uh, side of the community. I can really help you grow this. I can be your salesperson. And she's like, no, I don't think you have the right fit. Like just stick to, to what you're doing now, helping me with, you know, washing my clothes and whatever. And I think that was what, probably a turning point. And then the other one was when she walked on stage and she pitched it to, to all the investors in the room. I think in the series, those were the two kind of pinnacle moments, right? Where she really stood up for herself in the company. Yeah, and I, you know, and actually in those two moments are, are really fictional, but they really do represent what an entrepreneur goes through. So in that case, Addie Monroe, who is the character in the series in real life was Annie Malone, who was her competitor, who she worked for for a while. But again, not to give away spoilers, but the idea that a person we've all i think we've all had examples um in our careers whether in corporate life whether as a you know a, a, an everyday worker whether as an entrepreneur whether as somebody who's pitching your uh, idea where somebody just kind of pats you on the head and says well you know maybe this isn't really the right thing for you and mm-hmm. so that was a sort of the personified that and then for an, in another case with, you know, you go before a, a board of people who are angel investors and they say, well, you know, you don't, you don't really have the right stuff. So I think anybody who's an entrepreneur has faced a situation like that. I'm glad that you pointed that out because that is the, sort of the core of her pushing forward that she faced many obstacles and she faced many doors slammed in her face and she just you know believed enough in herself that she was pushing forward and i think over time 
her mission became not just about herself, but mm. about what she thought she could do for others. And, and, you know, one thing that I also found very interesting, and this is, I think, for a lot of, you know, women entrepreneurs listening to the, to the podcast, I, I bet that they would struggle uh, with this. And I, I understand it from, you know, the, the sidelines, I would say, and not being in the trenches. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that became apparent was here you have this like fierce, you know, tigress woman entrepreneur who's building this company, but also has a family, you know, has a kind of a struggling relationship with her husband uh, and, and has kind of a, she, she's trying to be this, this role model uh, to her daughter as well, who ideally would take on the ranks, except, you know, she ends up starting her own business. But, but then she has these like even personal problems with her own health. So I, I felt like she, she dedicated so much to the business that, that at that point in time, that's all she wanted to, to put her effort, attention and focus on. D did you get that just as well? Yeah, you know, there, there's certainly many lessons to be learned. And I think there was a point where she really was driven. And part of the, the part of her that was driven was wanting to do so much for her community. When she, on her deathbed, she said, you know, I just have so much more to do for my people. And she saw this need, especially as a person who was the first generation out of slavery, when uh, African-Americans were creating new institutions, the National Association of Colored Women, the NAACP, really fighting for their rights. And she knew that as a person of some wealth, she was able to push buttons and make things happen. But I think there was a point where it did become um, at the expense of her own health and her mm -hmm. own well-being. And she had, you know, as we're seeing right now, um, you know, people of color and communities, because of so much income inequality, we see that people's health is compromised. And sure. she certainly was one of those people. She had high blood pressure. She had ultimately kidney failure. So the kinds of health disparities that she had experienced because of the way she had grown up for the first 38 years of her life, she was a poor washerwoman with you know with no advantages with no health care and so you can see the the toll that it takes on somebody but mm -hmm. i think that she was so invested in making a difference in her community that she put some of those things out of her mind yeah you know that's a really good point uh, and uh, that's actually something that you probably don't think of to be honest like when you're watching it uh, i think people especially for me like it was quick to to assume like oh man like look look when someone grinds and hustles so hard, this, this is maybe what the, the, the challenging consequences of entrepreneurship are. You don't think of the last 30 years that you had to endure, you know, and, and that actually points me to another question. Sitting from where we are today, right, and, and you see this whole entrepreneurial ecosystem uh, and you see obviously some, some changes happening to the landscape, especially as it pertains to opening the doors for, uh, for more rights, especially for women um, and, and kind of reducing the glass ceiling. It begs uh, the, the question that like when, when Madam C.J. Walker was doing this, not only didn't she have any of that, but on top of that, she was fighting with racism and all these sort of hurdles and battles that she couldn't point to and be like, oh, well, you know, just help me out here. So, mm -hmm. but she persisted, right? So how do you see that, that change where kind of what you see today in 2020 versus what, what she had to deal with back then? You know, I think that one of the things that, that was true then and, and, and is true now is that she had a circle, a support system, a circle of women, especially who had helped her early on, who had, you know, shown her that there was a possibility for 
developing something. And when she, as she developed her business, she made sure that she created a group of people, she, you know, her C-suite, <laughs> you know, in a sense, a great attorney, the manager of her factory is a woman who had been the dean of girls at a black boarding school. Her bookkeeper had gotten the highest um, score on the civil service exam in Indiana and had applied for a job at the War Department in Washington, D.C. during World War I. But once they realized that she was a black woman, they told her they didn't have any jobs for her. So Madam Walker was really happy to hire her. So she surrounded herself with extremely competent people. And she also had the ability to lift others up. So that support system, that ecosystem that really was there in the leadership of her company and as she recruited other women is part of what sustained her. But she knew that there was something beyond just making money. And I think that's why she became very politically involved. She started speaking out about lynching and she spoke out about the rights of black soldiers because she knew that the community needed to be strong, that the stronger the community was, um, the more the people would be able to thrive and survive. So it was a, she understood, yes, making money is really important and being able to be economically independent in America during that period of time was necessary, but you had to have some other things to shore you up. And so the political power was essential. Yeah, and like one of her superpowers too was she she never let uh, herself to be kind of like, um, how do you say this? You know the example, like don't judge a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. And I think because it was true for her own kind of story, I think when, it was it her, her head of legal, I believe at the time, he was working at a hotel as a doorman, I believe, or something right. of that sort. Right. But she knew his extensive background in education. He just wasn't offered the opportunities. She's like, man, you're wasting your time. You got to come work with me. You know, and, and imagine like when you're offered this opportunity in that kind of environment, that builds that trust and it solidifies it immediately. Well, and he, this was, I really, if I were, if I were doing this series and, and I were entirely in charge, the F.B. Ransom, Freeman B. Ransom, her attorney, had studied at Columbia University, but like many black men during the period of time, he wasn't, certainly wasn't offered a job as an associate in the law firm. And he was working as, um, working for the railroad, carrying bags for other people. And that section of the film I actually liked, even though it didn't happen exactly that way, I liked that scenario where she, he was able to see, I can come mm. work for you. And he was so critical in her success. And I think anybody who's in business, there's that sense of, you know, those legal bills, those billable hours, do I want to pay them? But the the thing that people know is that either you pay now or you pay later. So, <laughs> and in this case, he was integral to her success because he stayed behind in the office as she traveled around the United States and even overseas. And he crossed the T's and dotted the I's. He protected her from other, you know, from legal problems. But that meant she could be the visionary. That mm. meant she could be on the road. And I always say to young entrepreneurs who think about those <laughs> five and six and seven hundred dollar an hour fees you know if you don't pay them now something else is something's going to come to bite you and he really protected her yeah, yeah <laughs> you, you'll pay them later yeah 
for 100% as an entrepreneur. Um, what would like, I, actually, I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, and, and I want to get into your, to writing the book, but just as we wrap the, the sort of series on Netflix, how did that whole thing happen? Like, were you at all involved? How did Netflix approach the family? Like, I'm just kind of curious from the backdrop. And I do ask this too, because I recently, just this week, I had on the co-founder of Netflix and their first CEO, Mark Randolph. So there was kind of a nice, uh, you know, complimentary piece there. Oh, well, great. Well, so this, listen, it is, I think anybody who, if, if you write a book and it actually ultimately makes it into a series, people tell me this is a minor miracle. That's and it cool really is a long, <laughs> it's a long journey. In the 1980s, a few years after I had graduated from Columbia Journalism School mm -hmm. and had written my paper about Madam Walker, we were approached by Alex Haley, who was the, you know, the author of the book Roots. And that was the, one of the major miniseries in the history of television yeah. in the 1970s. And Alex wanted to do a miniseries on Madam Walker, but this is 1982. Alex died in 1992 without having done it. But I had, in the meantime, done research for him and written a children's book about Madam Walker. His uh, his uh, editor became my editor. And the book that I wrote that came out in 2001, On Her Own Ground, is the book that, is, that inspired the series. But during those 20 years between the time that book was published and the Netflix series, I had two different options from major studios. Those all fell through. Mm -hmm. Then we had about a decade when Hollywood said, we're not really interested in um, stories about people of color because they don't sell overseas. So, wow. you know, that was the conventional wisdom. But then 12 Years a Slave and Selma um, and some other films that did well internationally began to change the narrative. And then my phone started ringing again. So I got a call from Mark Holder, who was a producer with a small production company, as well as three or four other people. But my conversation with Mark was very favorable. I enjoyed it and he understood what I had done. And so he optioned the book and then he brought Octavia Spencer into the mix as a act, as a lead actor and as the, uh, as an executive producer. But then mm. things changed in a way that I wasn't expecting. I had thought I would be involved in helping to shape the storyline. But once Warner Brothers acquired the property and then they were working in conjunction with Netflix, the script writer, the head writer, really kind of left me out of the process. Mm. And happily left me out of the process because there were some things that, some decisions that she made and some things she wanted to do that I didn't really agree with. But ultimately I had what was called script review Mm -hmm. which meant I was able to read the scripts of the four series, four episodes before they went on the air. So I was able to offer suggestions and notes and some of my suggestions they incorporated and some they didn't. So I'm now, you know, posted, you know, now it's on the air and it's an interesting journey to watch your book become a film because you know, some things are going to be changed and some things you like and some things yeah. you don't. But ultimately, Octavia Spencer did a great job. Millions of people around the world know Madam Walker's name. And I'm getting a chance to talk about that and also tell the real story. 
Yes, yes. And I think that's probably the, the most important part, right? Is, is maybe before this, like a lot of people didn't know that story. And I, I, I even I know people at work, for example, a lot of my colleagues were so inspired by, you know, by her story. And I, I think that they did shed light on that. Uh, and, and it's kind of interesting from your side when you when you are an author of, of this, this book, and you've done so much research, and you were probably the closest, you know, to the story, uh, t- tangibly, I would say, it's kind of weird for you to, to, to watch it. Was that like, and maybe a question for you is like, if you were the producer, let's say, what would you have done differently? So the things that I would have done differently, I would not have made the, what I think ultimately ended up kind of being a cat fight between two women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, you know, that over colorism that really didn't happen. She did in fact have a rival, but I would have focused on a strong relationship with a woman who was her mentor, who helped her transform herself. Because I think that's very important. You know, we talk about anybody who's in business. How do you, you know, you find somebody who's a mentor. That's a hard thing to do. Who is the, you know, I think about uh, Bill Campbell, who was a, a mentor to many people in Silicon Valley. And Bill, I got to know because he was chairman of the board at Columbia uh, and I'm a, a trustee. And I knew that Bill had been, uh, had mentored a lot of people that he especially worked with women in Silicon Valley. But somebody like that, I would have loved to have seen a character, a composite character who really helped Sarah Breedlove begin to have a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. I would have focused more on her politics, her relationship with Ida B. Wells Barnett, who was one of the premier anti-lynching activists. I would have done more on her philanthropy instead of just saying, she, when she said, I want to be bigger than Carnegie and Rockefeller, you know, that that was a great line. But what she also said was, and she didn't really say that, but that was, I understood the reason for having that there to show, you know, this is a black woman who would think that she was going to be a millionaire and that she aspired to it. But she also aspired to doing a lot for her community and giving back. So I think that gets lost a little bit, but she said, um, I love to use a part of what I make to help others. And at her 1917 convention, I would have made, I would have done a big deal on this, this convention because in her speech or keynote, she said, I want others to look at us and realize that we care not just about ourselves, but about others as Walker agents. And at the end of the convention, um, after she had given prizes, not just to the women who sold the most products, but to the ones who contributed the most to charity. At the end of the convention, the women sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. So those things for me were really important in telling who she was. But, you know, now there just has to be a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Part two. Produced and directed by... Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's so true. And it's, it's kind of, I, I get what you mean. And, and it must be a little bit, you know, I don't want to say frustrating because it's a negative word, but I, I get your point. It's kind of like a struggle because from one side, you, you know, you understand what they're trying to do because it sells. Right. And for people who don't know the story, when they see the trailer, they're like, oh, my God, this is so this is amazing. You know, it just kind of catches you in it. It's like a binge series, too, because it's short. You right. I couldn't stop it. That was the problem. I just I had to it. know what was going to happen. Um, but yeah, to your point, and, and actually, that's one of the things I heard in terms of kind of feedback, the only, you know, not so positive feedback was that cat fight, that, you know, they shed more light on that fighting versus like, 
could women work more together than I th- that I think she portrayed as well. Right. So it's interesting to hear you say that. It's kind of it. it yeah, it just puts it to, to be true, essentially. Right. But that means that that I mean, that's why I'm so glad I'm getting a chance to talk with you and, you know, and with others to tell the story, encourage them to read my to read my book on her own ground and do, and to really dig and find out more about her life. So that's this is a gift for me to be able to do this. And, and, and are you still involved with like what's basically what's what's the status of the company today? I'm, I'm so I'm happy. Like I'm really happy to say that that the company never went out of business. Though my family was directly involved into the 1980s, and the okay. trademark was actually sold to another company that owned it for about 30 years. But they were they never were major players. But it the trademark was bought by Richelieu Dennis. Um, mm. who was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands, which makes Shea Moisture and Nubian Heritage. And Rich came to the U.S. from Liberia in the late um, 80s. And he went to Babson College. People who are entrepreneurs have heard of Babson and Wellesley Mass. And when he was graduating in 1991, his mom came for his graduation. But the war was going on in Liberia, and they couldn't go back. But he had heard of Madam Walker and wondered what had happened to her. In order to survive after he graduated, he and his roommate, who was also Liberian, started selling shea butter on the corner of 125th and 5th Avenue in Harlem using his grandmother's recipe. And he built it into a multi-billion dollar corporation, which he sold to Unilever a couple of years ago. In the process, he developed a line called MCJW for Madam C.J. Walker that sold at Sephora. And he used some of the proceeds from the sale to Unilever to buy Essence Magazine and to create a $100 million venture capital fund for women of color entrepreneurs called New Voices Fund. So your listeners who are women entrepreneurs should look that up. One other key thing that he did was to create a foundation that now owns Madam Walker's mansion in Irvington, New York. So it will be a think tank for some of the women who go through the New Voices Fund um, competition. That's so cool. Is this still preserved, like fully preserved? It is beautifully. It's a National Historic Landmark and a National Trust for Historic Preservation uh, National Treasure. So it was on my family, my grandparents and the Walker estate had to sell it in the 30s after Alelia Walker died. It was owned for several decades by a women's retirement. It was a women's retirement home. Then there were two other owners, one person, Ingo Appel, who owned it for about a decade. And then Harold and Helena Doley, uh, a black investment banker, owned it until 20... Uh, 2017 or so, and then Richelieu's foundation purchased it. So it's a beautiful, magical place called Villa Lawaro. If people want to look it up, L E W A R O. That's amazing! Wow. And and so, but are are they still producing uh, the the the, the product line, or is is that still? Right. So there is a product line. So the original product that you know, for people to you know understand, Madam Walker was this was um. Necessity is the mother of invention, that really her problem that she was solving, as entrepreneurs are always solving a problem, 
is that in a, when a century ago when most people didn't have indoor plumbing, they didn't bathe very often, which we don't want to think about too much. And mm. they didn't wash their hair very often. And that meant they had really bad scalp infection. So her problem was a scalp infection that was causing her to go bald. So she developed a shampoo and then an ointment like Vaseline that had sulfur in it. And the sulfur was worked as a medicinal agent to heal the infections. Once the scalp was healthy, your hair could grow back. So that's what her wonderful hair grower was. But as she developed that product and she was selling it, I mean, that was revolutionary a hundred years ago. But now, you know, you look at shampoos and it says no sulfate. So we don't, you know, we don't use sulfates and the really heavy ointment that people use then is not something people use now. So with a hundred years of research and development, there are new, there are 24 new formulas. I mean, all these, many of these companies do this with uh, conditioners and exfoliants and moisturizers. And that's really what these wonderful new uh, products are for the MCJW line. So it's consistent with Madam Walker's idea for healthy hair and healthy scalps, but it's a different formula. Gotcha. Well, that, I mean, it's a hundred years of pivoting and adjusting, which is, which is insane. Wow. That must be, uh, that must be crazy. And, and, and one, one thing on the book too, like when you were packaging this research together, where did you go for information? Like, did you leave a journal behind? What were there sort of artifacts that you leaned on or? I am so lucky. You know, this was again, Madam Walker surrounding herself with extremely talented and competent people. Her attorney kept meticulous records and then her secretary, a woman named Violet Davis Reynolds, who went to work for her in 1914 as a teenager, was still working for the Walker Company in the 1970s. Wow. And when I was growing up, she was my neighbor. She would drive past <laughs> our house every day. She had a Thunderbird, even though she was like, you know, an elderly woman and she was hunched over the, the wheel. But she had a Thunderbird going downtown to the office. But she preserved all of these business records, annual reports, tax records, personal letters, business, business documents. And those uh, documents, almost 50,000 documents, were donated to the Indiana Historical Society and created into the Walker Collection. And most of those have been digitized. So to have a, a company owned by a woman and a person of color from the early 1900s to actually have the business records is quite rare but i was able to use those records as the foundation for my research and then i was a i traveled around the country i interviewed some people who were still living so it was as my training as a journalist i used that to reconstruct the story but i guess i i do want to say to some of your you know entrepreneurs who are listening we're now such a, a digital born society, but it is really important to keep documents, to keep your records. And because once you're gone, if there, if there, there isn't a, you know, it doesn't have to be a piece of paper, but it needs to be a digitized file that really documents what you did and how you built the business. What was your origin story? Part of the reason she's remembered is mm -hmm. that she told her origin story and then had the documents to back it up. Yeah, that's such a good point. That's such a good point, to be honest, because you don't think of that as much, right? Because even if it's digitized, like you put something on, on the internet, whether it's through social channels or, you know, a blog platform and you think it's, well, whatever, it's on the web, like people can find it. But what if eventually that gets taken down or that platform no longer exists? 
your content, right? That that's that's your asset, no longer. Uh, no, or, I, or I listen. I just had that happen. I updated my website, and I had blogs that I'd written, you know, like eight years worth of blogs, and all of those didn't migrate. So I'm I'm now trying to recover those. I'm hoping my webmaster can recover those blogs because they're things you know you write on the spur of the moment. Exactly. And they're gone. What is your writing style, though? Do you like? Do you prefer writing through like a journal? What What gets you more inspired? Like, what What's What's that kind of writing routine? Oh for you? God, it's all over the place. I mean, I'm always I'm doing two or three or four or five <laughs> different things. <laughs> I don't really keep a journal. I really wish I were disciplined enough to do that. But I do post on social media. I may just get some inspiration and I post something. I write blogs from time to time. When I moved, it's not consistent. My webmaster is trying to um, nudge me to do a newsletter that sort of documents what I'm doing and does upcoming things. And then I'm, I have an ongoing, um, I'm finishing another book. So I've written four really? books about Madam Walker and I'm almost finished with a biography of her daughter, Alelia Walker and her life in Harlem during the 20s. So she's really different from the character from the Tiffany Haddish character, well, that, her that's life one is of really, really different. <laughs> but I'm I'm almost finished with that book, and then I do other things. I just finished writing a, a really long, longer than I expected, five thousand word article about my experience working with this, um, working on this Netflix series. So I have, you know, I write essays from time to time. So I'm all over the place. I'm not a good <laughs> example of discipline. <laughs> no, but but you're a good. Uh, you're definitely a good reference for multitasking, which is which is good. Um, uh, on that point, though, I did want to ask, like, what ended up happening with with her daughter? Because we almost saw, like, we saw what obviously a bit of the evolution, but not the continuation, right? We saw when she opened up the salon, and but I, I didn't really get a gist of what what had happened later on. So, right. and I, I don't yeah, want to ruin I, the book, but just kind of like maybe a demo. What, what? No, well, no, I'm, but in, and, and on my website, on aleliabundles.com, I have a blog piece called The Real Alelia Walker is More Interesting Than the Myth. <laughs> mm. Because she really, in many ways, when people who write about the Harlem Renaissance write about her, they have a, it's essentially one paragraph that's really pretty inaccurate. And it basically goes, Madam Walker made the money. Alelia Walker spent the money. She had parties. The end. And I really think nobody is that pathetic. <laughs> I think she's got a lot more going for her. So as I have done the research for this book, a couple of things really come to mind. She's really, in the film, she's very flighty. And so that's not really who she was. But that's kind of the meme about her. But it was, she truly was not as driven as her mother. So that part is true. I mean, that, and it is very difficult to be the child of, of a, a first generation entrepreneur who builds a business. You can never live up to their expectations. So there was some conflict with them uh, around that. But it was her idea that they moved to Harlem, that they have a presence in Harlem. The company was headquartered in Indiana and the Midwest, where it was economical to do business. It was great for transportation. But the glitz and the platform that elevated them was being in Harlem. That meant everybody knew who they were. And that was really her idea. She persuaded her mother to do that. Uh, then she, at, during the 1920s, as she's trying to find, you know, what is it that I love doing? She really was, both women really loved the arts. 
And that was a great bond between them. But during the 20s, as it was the Harlem Renaissance and the writers and musicians and actors and artists were coming, her places, her homes were gathering places for people. And then she traveled internationally. She went to Havana. Um, she really loved Cuba during the teens. She went to London, Paris, Rome, where she went to the coronation of the Pope and where the Italian journalists wrote about her because she was so exotic. She went to Monte Carlo, to Cairo, to Palestine, uh, to Addis Ababa, where she met the Empress. So she was a woman of the world. And I really want to convey that in the new book. Wow, wow. As you have these, these you know, female entrepreneurs who are so successful in your lineage and your history, what, if you were to sort of summarize, like, let's say a couple of pieces of advice or lessons that you personally learn and you keep with you now, what would those be? Well, Madam Walker would say that um, when people ask her the secret to her success, the first key is you have to have a great product. <laughs> And I think that's true no matter what. You can't fool people if you've got a shy, sort of shoddy product. And then you have to advertise. You have to be good at marketing. And she was a master at marketing. She, one of her earliest ads was a before and after picture with her hair very short and spotty. And then showing that her hair, that her hair grower really worked. But she had testimonials like the Jenny Craig commercials where women wrote to her and said, you know, before I started using Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, my hair was an eighth of an inch long, and now it's down my back, and I've been able to throw my wig away. But she also included testimonials from women who were selling her products, who were making profits. So it was have a great product, advertise it, market it, and then surround yourself, create a really strong leadership team, uh, and empower others. Don't make them push their a uh, light under a bushel, lift, lift them up. And, and then become uh, generous as a philanthropist and pay attention to what's going on in the world. I love that, love that. And, and just to wrap it up, where can people, one, connect with you, but two, uh, find, find whether it's your books, your blogs, the articles that you write, where can they find those resources? So I have two websites, aleliabundles.com, A-L-E-L-I-A bundles.com. And madamcjwalker.com, M-A-D-A-M-C-J-Walker.com. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Aaliyah. This was awesome. I appreciate you doing this. I, I just, I'm so grateful for you reaching out. It's been <laughs> such a joy. And I look forward to meeting you when I'm in Chicago. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.